Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our West Conway campus. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much for allowing me to be here today. And I do want to bring you greetings from thousands of church planters all across North America. I just flew here uh, yesterday with David Killebrew, who's with me. We flew in here from Columbus, Ohio. In Columbus, we've just spent the last three days with about six to 700 church planters and their wives pouring into them, all of them planting in the Midwestern United States from Indianapolis to St. Louis, Kansas City, Minnesota. So I just want to say thank you for your generosity. It's because of your giving. It's because of churches like you who are choosing to give not just to a church, but through a church as an investment in the kingdom of God being expanded, that the mission of God is being fueled in North America through these planters and their teams and their families. So thank you for being generous and thank you for investing in churches being planted. I also wanna bring you greetings today from your brothers and sisters in Christ in Las Vegas, Nevada. Maybe you didn't know you had brothers and sisters in Christ in Las Vegas, but that's the city God called me to with my family 22 years ago. 22 years ago, First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia reached out to my family and said, we believe uh, we're led of the Lord to start a church in the fastest growing city in North America at the time, and we believe you're to be the planter and pastor of that fellowship. So my family packed up everything we had, relocated to Woodstock, Georgia, lived there for about a year so we can be sent out of that church. And now for the last 22 years have been in Las Vegas, Nevada. When God called my family to Las Vegas, I'm originally from Alabama. I'm not from Las Vegas originally. And being from Alabama is kind of like being from Arkansas. And here's what I mean by that. You don't go to Las Vegas. And if you do, you don't tell anybody, right? Like we don't think Las Vegas is hell, but we believe you can smell it from there. Like it's close. So I had no plan ever in my life to live in Las Vegas, Nevada, but for the last 22 years have had the privilege of now that city's home to my family. It's one of the great cities of North America. God is doing unbelievable things there. We've seen thousands of people come to faith in Jesus Christ in that city. It's the greatest place in the world to go to church because in Las Vegas, there is zero cultural Christianity. Here's what I mean by that. Nobody comes to church in Vegas on Sunday because it's what you do on Sunday. Because in Las Vegas, it is not what you do on Sunday. So this weekend at our church in Las Vegas, we'll have about 4,000 people in worship representing 54 first languages in our fellowships, very diverse, multi-ethnic church. And from the front row all the way to the back row, everybody's leaning into worship because nobody came there because it's what they had to do. They're genuinely there as followers of Jesus who are either falling in love with him or genuinely asking the question, is Jesus what I need? So Thank you for what you give and what you invest to allow church planners like myself and so many others touch cities all over North America. Let me lead us in a word of prayer, and I want to jump right into a text of Scripture. Let's pray. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus right now that your Holy Spirit would take the truth of your word. God, and as only you can, would you take the truth and bring conviction, application, and transformation to our lives. Lord, may we not just be hearers of the word today, but may we be doers. May we respond in submission and surrender and repentance to your word. 
And would you just ask the Lord right now, even before I close this prayer, would you pray and say, God, would you give me ears to hear what you want to say to me today? Holy Spirit of God, we invite you to move among us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. A number of years ago, I was reading a book and I read a quote in the book and it wasn't even by the author. He was quoting someone else. He was quoting a man named William James. I don't know a lot about William James other than this quote. But when I heard this quote, everything in me screamed yes. And here was the quote. The great use of a life is to spend it for something that outlasts it. I don't know how that hits you today. But when I heard that for the very first time, everything in me said, yes, I want to live my life for something that's bigger than me. And I don't know that there's ever been a group of people that more embodied the reality of that statement by William James than the people we read about in the opening pages of the book of Acts. If you have your Bible, open it to Acts chapter 1. And in just a few moments, I'm going to get to a text of Scripture that I'm going to read from the book of Acts. But before I do, let me tell you the story, the context of these verses that we're about to read. In the opening pages of the book of Acts, we read the story of the very first church ever planted. I don't mean the first Baptist church or the first, I mean like the OG original first church ever planted. The first local New Testament church in the history of the world is planted in the city of Jerusalem in the nation of Israel on the other side of the world 2,000 years ago. And on their very first Sunday, what we would call today launch Sunday or grand opening, on their very first Sunday, Simon Peter got up and preached the gospel and get this, 3,000 people became followers of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know how you measure church planning success here in Conway, Arkansas, but I would submit to you, if a church starts and on Sunday number one, 3,000 people become followers of Jesus Christ, that's a pretty successful church plan, amen? I'm giving you another shot at that. That's a pretty successful church plan, amen? I told you, I pastored a church for 22 years in Vegas made up of 54 languages. So we have all kind of cultures in our church. And one of the beautiful things about multiple cultures is some cultures worship a lot louder than others. So I've gotten a little used to people talking back to me every once in a while. So I'm going to get you to help me a little bit through this. So if 3,000 people get saved on Sunday, number one, that's a big deal. Amen. Hey, if that's not a big enough deal, on Sunday number two, they came back to preach the gospel again, and so many people became followers of Jesus, they couldn't count everybody. So the Bible only tells us how many men became followers of Jesus, and then it says women and children with them. On Sunday number two, there was 5,000 men, which means two Sundays into a brand new church plant, over fifteen to 20,000 new followers of Jesus Christ. If that's not a big enough deal, historians and scholars tell us that within six months of this church launching in Jerusalem, get this, 100,000 people had become followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. I asked somebody in the first service, what's the population of Conway? And somebody on the front row told me it's about 65,000 people. Could you imagine if we could say six months from now, all of Conway knows Jesus? There's not a lost person left. All 65,000. You know the problem with us in the church in America today? We don't even think God does that kind of stuff anymore. 
But here's the deal. The same God that was sitting on the throne in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2 is the same God who's sitting on the throne right now. He's never up for election. There's never a vote. He never takes a vacation. He doesn't even take a nap. God is still God. And God is still moving like this around the world. You want to talk about impact? Historians and scholars go on to tell us that within 40 years of this moment, the gospel reached every corner of the known world. You talk about turning the world upside down. As we sit here today in a comfortable setting in Conway, Arkansas, there are roughly 2 billion people on planet Earth who all profess to be followers of Jesus. Now, we can argue and debate the, 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 the genuineness of all of those professions based on evangelical lines, but, but roughly 2 billion people on the planet say, I'm a Christian. And every single one of those two billion trace their faith back to these people in Acts chapter 1 and 2. When I learned that story, I began to ask some questions about who these people were. Like, what was it about them? I want to be used like that. Anybody in the room want to be, want God to use? I want my life to matter like that. What was it about them? that enabled them to be so mightily used of God. And when I began to study them, you know what I found out? There wasn't much to them. Like, they didn't have money, they didn't have education, they didn't have experience, they didn't have influence, they weren't great speakers, they weren't orators, they were not political leaders. My friend J.D. Greer, Greer, who I'm preaching for next weekend in North Carolina, J.D. said it this way, never has a larger assignment been given to a less qualified group of people. But I think if we'll read the text, we can see some things that were characteristics that enabled them to be so mightily used to God. If you will, we can find some things that were kind of sails that they lifted up that allowed the wind of the Spirit of God to blow on them in power. So let's read it. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read a pretty long text, but then we're going to pull some things out of it. Verse 1 says, in the book, in the first book, I'm reading out of the ESV, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The first book he's talking about is the book of Luke, Luke, the gospel of Luke. He says, until the day when he was taken up and after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the, say it out loud if you see it, speaking about the what, the Say that phrase one more time. The what? Massively important phrase in the first chapter here. Massively important. As Baptists, we're so excited about verse 8, we skip over the first 7 like their introduction. But this is a massively important statement. We'll come back to it. Verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water but you will be baptized with the holy spirit not many days from now so when they'd come together they asked him lord will you at this time restore the kingdom to israel i love this let me tell you why i love this some problems we have in the church today are not new problems they're old problems here's the early church about to be given the mission of joining in god's activity expanding the kingdom among cities and nations all over the world and they want to talk politics here was the question lord you about to kick rome out so we can be back in control of the government again? 
Is now the time you're going to restore the government political power to Israel? We're ready to be in control again. We don't like the decisions they're making. We don't like the direction they're taking us. Can we be in charge again? You know what Jesus says? That's none of your business. Look at it. I'm not making it up. Verse 7, he said to them, it is not for you to know. Let me tell you what that is in the Greek. That's none of your business. It's not for you to know times or seasons. Get this, that the Father has fixed by his own. Listen, don't preach to me a sovereign God and then come unglued when you lose an election. God is sovereign. We can trust him that he's in control. If we're not careful in the church in America, the undoing of the power and authority of the church in America is going to be our syncretism between politics and our Christianity. On both sides of the aisle, we have a dangerous syncretism that views our faith through the lenses of our political ideology, and if we're not careful, it will be the undoing of the effectiveness of the church in North America. Look at verse 8. Now we get to verse 8. Jesus said, here's the real mission. The real mission is not elections. It's not politics. It's not political idea. Here's the mission. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When he'd said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon, the zealot and Judas, the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Now, total transparency, we could spend six weeks unpacking those 14 verses and still not glean everything that's in there. But what I want to do is give you a quick 30,000-foot overview and extract four principles that I think we see in these people in these verses that enable them to be so mightily used of God. And here's what I love about them. None of them are beyond our reach. We can grab a hold of these, apply them to our lives, lift up our own sails, and should the wind of the Spirit of God choose to blow again, we'll be ready. Here's the first one. They had a faith that produced obedience. Let me say it another way. They trusted God and did what God said. Now, I know that sounds simple, but in the day and age we live in of technology and strategies and philosophies and experience and education and degree, Listen, we, we, we often today don't need God anymore, but not the early church, man. They waited for God to speak, and when God spoke, they did what he said when it made sense and when it didn't make sense. Listen, sometimes God will call us to stuff that doesn't add up on the budget sheet. It's not going to always make sense. You say, where do you see that in the text? Well, verse 4 says, he told them to go and wait in Jerusalem. And he said, here's the deal. We're going to start our new movement in the city of Jerusalem. Now, you got to understand what Jerusalem was. Jerusalem was the scene of the crime. 
40 days earlier in Jerusalem, the whole city had lined the streets and with one voice, here's what they echoed about Jesus, crucify him. Here's what that means. You did not have to do a demographic study of the neighborhood surrounding Jerusalem to determine if they were open to a new church beginning in their community. They were not. They'd clearly said, we don't want your Jesus. We don't want your church. We don't want your way. We don't want your teaching. And they literally nailed the door shut. And Jesus said, all right, here's the plan. We're going to start in Jerusalem. And here's the crazy part. They did it. That tells me something about them. They didn't make their decisions based on their feelings. Nobody felt good about Jerusalem. Like Jerusalem didn't feel good at all. They said, if we go to Jerusalem, we're going to die. We're going to be killed. They're going to crucify us like they crucified Jesus. They didn't make their decisions based on their opinions. Oh, we're bad about that as Baptists. How do we make decisions? Well, let's vote on it. You know, the majority can be wrong. Ask the spies in the book of Exodus. The, the, the majority can be wrong. What do we need to do? We need to hear God speak. That's what we need to do. You know what we need in the church in America today? We need some Caleb and Joshua's who will hear the voice of God. And regardless of what anybody says, they're going to follow the call of God. This early crowd, they didn't make their decisions based on their opinions. Because I promise you, it was nobody's opinion that Jerusalem was the place to start the new church. Like if you'd pass out index cards and said, everybody write down your city where you think we ought to go start the movement. Let me tell you what one city wouldn't have made anybody's card. Well, I'll take that back. That'd have been the one smart aleck in the room, probably Peter. He'd have wrote it this way. I don't care where we start as long as it's not Jerusalem. And then where do they start? What city? Say it out loud. Doesn't make sense. Unless it's what they heard him say. They didn't make their decisions based on their circumstances. You ever heard this spiritual phrase before? Well, we didn't go because God closed the door. What does that mean? I'm going to tell you, Jerusalem screened closed door. And yet it's what God said anyway. You know, one of the reasons why the church in North America is not seeing God move in power, and I say that intentionally because North America is one of only two continents, including Europe, in the world where Christianity is declining. On every other continent in the world, Christianity is not only growing, it's exploding. In North America, it's declining. With all our buildings, all our budgets, all our seminary degrees, all our experience, we're shrinking as a people on our continent. And one of the reasons is we've lost the ability to hear the voice of God. We got this thing so figured out, we don't need God to speak anymore. I mean, we got planning center for crying out loud. What do we need God for? Number two, they had a passion that produced unity. I'm going to prove to you biblically that the first church in Jerusalem was not a Baptist church. Now, I know that's going to upset some of us today. And I say that as somebody who'd been Baptist longer than I've been a Christian. I, I was a Baptist before I was born. Like I went to church for nine months, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, before I was even born. I grew up and my, much of my nutrition came out of Wednesday night church service meals. Like I, I'm Baptist to the core. But I'm gonna prove to you this is not a Baptist church. Verse 14, look at it. These all with one accord. 
In the Greek language, it's a word that means one will, one heart, one mind. Here's what it means. The whole church was passionate about the same thing. Ain't no way that's a Baptist church. You ever find that Baptist church? Do not join it because you will wreck it. You'll ruin it, right? Pastor, are you saying we don't have passion? No, 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 no. We, we got passion. The problem is we all are passionate about something different. One person is passionate about this particular philosophy of ministry. Somebody else is passionate about this particular subgroup. Somebody else is passionate about this particular political agenda ideal. All these different passions. And rather than our passion uniting us, our passion divides us. And we misrepresent the kingdom of God to a watching world. But not the early church. The Bible says about them, even though they were very different. I mean, listen to the names. One of them is Matthew, the tax collector. The other is Simon, the zealot. You do know that those were the opposite extremes of political opposition in their day. Rome ruled the government. The zealots were Jews who hated the Romans so bad, they were willing to use violence to any length necessary to throw Rome out. The tax collectors were Jews who'd so gotten in bed with the Roman government, they'd been given legal certification to extort money from their own people, the Jews, and collect as many taxes as they wanted. Inside of the original 12 disciples, you had the far right and the far left, and yet something, something brought them together and united them and was greater than that which divided them. What was it? Go back to verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about thee. I said you say it out loud earlier. Speaking about the what? Kingdom of God. I find this interesting. It's the last 40 days Jesus is physically on planet earth, and the Bible says for 40 days he only preached one sermon. Over and over and over and over. it's almost as if he said if you forget everything else i've taught you in three and a half years of public ministry don't forget this kingdom of god what is the kingdom of god for sake of time here's the definition the kingdom of god is god's sovereign activity in the world resulting in people being in right relationship with himself that's the kingdom the kingdom is the big picture of what God is doing in the world. Did you know that from Genesis to Revelation, there's a meta narrative that's the whole story of Scripture? And it's the story of God's eternal redemptive mission that He's redeeming to Himself a people, not just from America, a people from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. And here's what the Bible says one day, one day, one day, somewhere in the world, the last soul is going to be ushered into the kingdom. Maybe here this morning. And when that happens, King Jesus, the Bible says the Lord himself is going to descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ are going to be raised first. Then we who are alive and remain are going to be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then we'll always be with who? King Jesus, the kingdom, every tribe, every tongue, every people. Eternity is not first Baptist and second Baptist and third Methodist. Eternity is King Jesus ruling and reigning over his kingdom made up of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation for all eternity. And the early church said, we're in. Like we don't care what color the carpet is. We don't care what time the services are. We don't care if you have to wear suits and ties or shorts and flip-flops. We don't care if the music's traditional or contemporary. We don't care if it's left or right. Here's what we care about. Let's see the kingdom of God expanded. 
in cities and nations all over the world. And they wrap their hearts around it. Number three, they had a desperation that produced prayer. How many of you believe God has a sense of humor? If you believe that, let me see your hand. If you don't believe that, you're wrong. Where do you think you got yours from? We're made in the image of God. God has a sense of humor. Some of the funniest verses in all the Bible I read for you this morning, and you didn't even get the joke. You didn't even laugh at it. I'm going to read them again to give you another shot at it. You ready? Verse 9. It says, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. You didn't get the joke. See, what's the problem with us in America is we've read the Bible so many times, we read right over stuff that happens like it ain't nothing, and that's something. That phrase, that verse opens with this phrase, and when he'd said these things. It's looking back to verse 8. What had he just said? Here's what he just said. All right, get this. Jesus, three and a half years of public ministry, kingdom, 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 gets them all on a hillside, 120 people. He says, all right, lean in. Here's the plan. So just, just, just do this way. Just, just lean in for a second. Here's, Jesus, lean in. Here's the plan. Here's the plan. We're going to start a movement, and you're going to start in Jerusalem where they hate you. Hang on. Then you're going to go to Judea and Samaria where you hate them. The Jews and Samaritans hated one another. So Jesus said, lean in. Here's the plan. After he said these things, what did he just say? We're going to start in Jerusalem where they hate you. Then you're going to go to Judea and Samaria where you hate them. Then you're going to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. What does that mean? Places you don't know exist and you don't know how to get there. So lean in. Here's the plan. You're going to start where they hate you. Then you're going to go where you hate them. Then you're going to go where you don't know exists and you don't know how to get there. And then he starts floating. And I'm not talking Las Vegas Levitation Act. I mean, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Gone. Did anybody write down what he just said? Hey, hey, you think he's coming back? You say, you're making that up. I'm not making that up. Look at the next verse. Look at verse 10. Verse 10. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, what does that look like? And I believe if what happened next in the Bible hadn't happened next, you'd have found 120 dead people with their skeletons, jaws hanging wide open right there on the Mount of Olives. You know what happened next? (laughs) Jesus gets to heaven, sends two angels to tell them to move along. You say, you're making that up. No, I'm not. Look at it. Verse 10, while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, get this. What are you doing standing here looking up into heaven? And everything changed with the next phrase. This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, here it is, will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. And as soon as they heard it, 
They ran down from the Mount of Olivet. They ran through the Valley of Kidron. They ran through the gates into Jerusalem. They ran up into the upper room. They slammed the door and they pulled out a whiteboard so they could have a strategy think tank session to determine how to establish felt needs in their community so they could build bridges relationally to take the God. Is that what the text said they did? No, what'd they do? The Bible says they got down on their knees and the scripture says it this way, they devoted themselves. They began to beg God, knowing that if God's not God, we're sunk. They were so desperate. They knew if God didn't show up, they didn't have a shot. You know the problem with us in the American church? We're not desperate for God. Let me tell you how I know. I preach in gatherings like this all over the country every week. You know how little time we spend praying. 26 times in 28 chapters in the book of Acts, the word prayer or praying is mentioned almost always, not exclusively, but almost always. It's the whole church together praying. You know why? Because they were desperate. You know what we've done to prayer in the church in America? We've relegated it to moments of transition when we move the band on and off the stage. We don't pray to pray anymore. We just pray to change the set. Get everybody to close their eyes so we can move stuff around. I'm not saying it's wrong to move stuff while we pray. I'm saying it's just wrong to pray just to move stuff. We got deeply convicted about this in our church in Las Vegas in 2015. Like I said, we'll have several thousand people this weekend, but we carve out eight to ten minutes in every public worship service and we lead the whole congregation to pray together for eight to ten minutes. People say, you can't do that in the church. What about all the lost people who come? Let me see what I've discovered. <laughs> when lost people come to a church, they actually expect us to talk to God. I'm serious. Not only that, they actually came to church hoping we'd show them how they could talk to God. And when we begin to pray, we've seen God do supernatural things. The early church was desperate for God. When I got to Las Vegas, my first week on the field, I got a telephone call from a Filipino lady. Her name was Letty Peralta. Letty said, Pastor, can I tell you a story? I said, Letty, I don't know anybody in Las Vegas. You can tell me any story you want to tell me. I've never been there before. I've been there for a week. She calls. I said, tell me your story. She said, Pastor, I'm from the Philippines. I moved to Hong Kong to make money for my family that was very poor. She said, well, living in Hong Kong, I met an American family and moved in with them, became the caretaker of their home. And as they paid me, I would send the money back to my extended family in the Philippines to support them. She said, over a period of months, that family from America became like my extended family. So much so that when they moved back to America, we got all the paperwork and I moved with them as a part of their family back to America. She said, we settled in a suburb north of Atlanta, Georgia called Woodstock, Georgia. She said, I visited a church called the First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia, and I heard the gospel and the kingdom of God like I'd never heard it before, and it changed my life. But she said, then my family got uprooted again, and we relocated to Las Vegas, Nevada. She, she said, Pastor, I've lived in Las Vegas for a year and a half, and I've prayed every day that the First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia would start a church in Las Vegas, Nevada. Would you please tell me who sent you here? Honest to God, two weeks earlier, we loaded everything we owned in a green Dodge minivan in the parking lot of the First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia, having been sent out of that church to Las Vegas, Nevada to start a new church, and none of us knew Lady Peralta even existed on the planet. 
We're 22 years in. I've seen 5,000 people almost come to faith in Jesus Christ, first-generation believers out of one of the darkest cities in the world. We've had the privilege to send out several hundred people out of our church and have been a part of planting 80 churches in the mountain and Pacific time zones out of our church in 22 years. We have 18 people currently in a pipeline with the IMB to go spend their lives in a country and culture in some other part of the world that are being launched out of Las Vegas, Nevada to take the gospel to unreached people groups. We work on four continents around the world. This year, we'll send close to 50 mission teams to engage globally out of our fellowship. And I get a call probably once a week, but I'm gonna say once a month just to be safe and make sure I'm not overstating it. For sure, at least once a month, some church planner will call me and they'll say this, man, how'd you do it? How does a guy parachute into Vegas from Alabama and see God do what you've seen God do? And I'm not trying to be spiritual. I'm not trying to be falsely humble. I'm trying to be honest. Here's the honest to God truth. One lady from the Philippines for a year and a half grabbed a hold of the altar of God and begged God to do what only God could do. And for 22 years, we've been riding a wave of the favor of God's activity because she prayed. Who's God going to raise up in this fellowship that's going to so get a hold of the altar of God? What group of people are going to begin to pray? Listen, prayer ain't cool. It's hard work. But when we seek God in prayer, we experience God in power. And the reason we're not seeing God move in North America today, we don't need God. We don't pray. Listen to this. God in his sovereignty has chosen to limit his activity to the prayers of his people. You say, prove that. Listen, I, I can't take you to chapter and verse, so here's, here, but here's what I can tell you. Anywhere you see God moving anywhere in the world, you dig deep enough, let me tell you what, you will always find a remnant of God's people who are crying out to God in prayer. I'm not saying God needs us. I'm saying God is sovereign and he's chosen to work in response to the prayers of his people. Here's the last thing and I'm done. They had the spirit that produced power. I know Acts chapter two makes us nervous as Baptists, makes us uncomfortable. There's some stuff that happens in there that just to be completely honest, we can't explain we got denominations that have been developed over the difference of opinion about what that means in Acts chapter 2 and the bottom line is we're going to get to heaven somebody's going to be wrong it might be us but here's what I can say with confidence out of Acts chapter 2 the Holy Spirit of God moved in Acts chapter 2 like the church had never seen him move before and here's what I believe we need today I believe we need a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God where all we can do is say God showed up and God did what only God could do. What if the measure of success when we gather every weekend is not how many people came? Did everything go just as we planned? Did we hit every note? Did we hit every slide just right? What if the measure of success became what can be explained from Sunday with this statement? The only explanation is God simply showed up. I believe if we'll have a faith that produces obedience, a passion that produces unity, a desperation that produces prayer, we are lifting up the sails, 
that should the wind of the Spirit of God choose to blow, we are ready to catch it and ride the wave of His activity. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.